call to order the January 18th, 2024 meeting of the Federated uh, Retirement System. And uh, we will begin with a roll call vote. Uh, sorry, not a vote, simply roll call. Uh, Vice Chair Jennings, are you here? Here. Very good. Trustee Abbott? Here. Trustee Avasi? Here. Trustee Tonga? Here. Trustee Faulkner? Here. And Trustee Linda? Here. All right, and I am here. Um, uh, Maytech, would you like to qualify those who are uh, attending remotely? Yes, that would be great. So, uh, Trustee Jennings, are you teleconferencing from the address 855 East Hilton Drive, Boulder Creek, California? Yes. And is the location ADA accessible and can members of the public be heard from that location? Yes. And have you posted the agenda on your uh, outside of the, the location from where your teleconference is from? Yes. Thank you. Um, she's qualified. Uh, Mr. or Trustee Linder, are you teleconferencing from the location 1251 Shiloh Ridge, Windsor, California? Yes. And is the location where you're teleconferencing from ADA accessible and can the members be heard from the location from where you are? Yes. And have you posted the agenda uh, outside the location from where you're teleconferencing from? Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Maytac. Um, a few ground rules. This is a hybrid meeting, so all votes will be roll call votes. Uh, on orders of the day, um, I'm just going to note that uh, item 4B uh, is a presentation from uh, an outside party, and they have requested a 10 a.m. start time, and we will uh, move to accommodate that. Hopefully, we will take a break right before that. Uh, prior to that 10 a.m. presentation. And I believe we have to waive sunshine on a few items, uh, and that is indeed the uh, presentation from uh, for item 4B, and that is the only thing. So do we have a motion to waive sunshine? So do we have a second? Second. And uh, any discussion, any public comment? If not, we will have a roll call vote. Uh, Vice Chair Jennings? Aye. Uh, Vice Chair, um, Trustee Abbott? Mean to promote you there, Trustee Elasti. Aye. Trustee Chandra. Aye. Trustee Faulkner. Aye. Trustee Linder. Aye. And I vote aye as well. So sunshine is waived. Um, at this point, uh, we will have public comment. Um, any members of the public who wish to comment on items not included on the agenda, uh, provided that the matter is in fact within the subject matter jurisdiction of this board, uh, may do so now. Uh, if they are present in the room or if they are on Zoom, they will be permitted to speak for three minutes. Is there anybody on Zoom waiting to speak with their hand raised? Okay, seeing none, we will move to the consent calendar. Uh, any items that anyone would like to pull from the consent calendar? Um, yes, Mr. Chair, I would like to pull, if you bear with me for a second, mm -hmm. two Two point five A. Okay. Uh, any any other uh, amendments to the consent calendar? So, with uh, bearing in mind that one amendment, so we will hear that uh, as a distinct agenda item. Uh, do we have a motion to approve the consent calendar? So moved. Uh, I'm sorry. Was that uh, Trustee Faulkner? Uh, Trustee Chandra. Okay. Hearing it out of my right ear. Is there a second? 
And we have a second from Trustee Abbott. Any public discussion? Any uh, trustee discussion? Uh, Vice Chair Jennings, how do you vote? Aye. Trustee Abbott? Aye. Trustee Avasti? Aye. Trustee Chandra? Aye. Trustee Faulkner? Aye. Trustee Linder? Aye. And I vote aye. Passes unanimously. And uh, we will now go to our next agenda item, which is closed session. Uh, Mr. Chair, the item that was pulled, can we, uh, I just wanted to make a comment so namely it can be approved as well by the board. I see, okay, um, very well. Yeah, so just wanted to, this is regarding the, uh, the PAFR, uh, which is the, uh, the report that is, uh, the condensed report that is issued by the office. I just wanted to know this information will be changed on page five under the benefits payments and funding progress. There is a table on the top left-hand corner. If you see, it includes creditor service, average monthly final, average salary, and average monthly benefit. The monthly benefit for the zero to five years reached $7,813, that's the mistake. So, we will actually have that fixed before the PAFRS is issued to uh, all stakeholders. I just wanted to make that point. So if you could approve the item, noting that that will be changed, uh, uh, that would be greatly appreciated. Thank you. Okay, I did have actually one more question about it. I'm trying to call up my copy of the PAFR. I gotta sure. get online here for a second. Where is the city's Wi-Fi? There we go. Bear with the chair for just a moment. I also wanted to mention that on page three, on middle of the board of trustees, uh, that's a pretty nice looking group there with those pictures. Uh, hmm. Is that up for vote? No, <laughs> uh, it was just a, it was just a statement. <laughs> Random observation. <laughs> um, yeah, my question is on page five. Um, I believe in the past we show the progress towards funding uh, and we show at the top of this graph the, uh, the, uh, the 58% for 2023. Correct. So that is indeed the number for fiscal year ending 2023. I believe in the past that was offset by a year and I believe that's because the PAFR came out a bit earlier in the schedule. So is this unlike past years where it is actually up to date? Uh, are you following what I'm saying? No, I'm not okay. clear on the I question. believe in the past when we've, when we've had the PAFR that in fact the, we only showed the 2022 numbers. Oh, um, in other words, that th th this there is the first year that for the PAFR we actually include the 58% for 2023. Right, that's what I'm, that's, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah. I believe uh, that's true. I believe, Barbara, do you know the answer to that question? I believe that it is 50A. I believe it's based on the most recent evaluation. Uh, I, I think I get your point now. Um, I believe I in the past we had some sort of a, a caveat, a footnote, yeah. donating, denoting that there was an offset. Uh, we showed the dollar figures for the, for the fiscal year just ended, but the funding ratio was only showed through the Oh, so you mean it was a roll forward uh, version? Yes, yes, yes. I think this is the roll forward version. It's based on on the assets numbers, but the evaluation has not been completed. But you take the assets number based on the funding version from the prior year, and you roll them forward, assuming you met all the uh, all the assumptions. 
So the, the actual um, funding ratio for 2023 may be a little different than 58.0, maybe 58.2, or just a, a But that's then largely an accident to the fact that the ratio hasn't changed that much this that's past exactly, year. That's exactly, that is correct. Yeah, so that's I guess a I'm wondering, do we, do we still need the footnote that, or the, the side note that we had previously we, included on this? We, when, uh, so Benji is actually traveling to the meeting. Benji okay. is the accounting manager. But we'll make a point that in addition to the change uh, mm -hmm. that I just noted, we'll ask the question and if okay. we need to add any further explanation on the no, we will certainly do that. Great. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Okay, with all um, that. Roberto, I have a question. Uh, uh, go what ahead. What is the number on this chart that's changing? Can you remind me? Of yes, on the top left-hand corner, the yeah. average monthly salary for the Credited service of zero to five years, that number is incorrect. It's not $7,813, it's lower than that. I don't right. have um, the figure uh, in front of me, but it's certainly uh, not that number. Roberto, I actually think it's the headers are, are switched. The two headers need to, that's what so, so, so what you're saying, um, I apologize. So what it is is that the average monthly benefit should be on the middle numbers and the average monthly salary uh, is on the right-hand side. That's so they, correct. So the headers are actually in the right location, and the numbers are the ones that are in the correct location. Yeah, but okay. she switched the headers. Thank you, Mr. Chair. So okay. I, I, I apologize. The, the, the correction should be, mm -hmm. we're um, going to change the number from the... So the monthly, the, 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 um, monthly benefit is going, especially in, in federated, will, the monthly benefit will be less than the monthly final salary because no one gets 100%. Correct, yeah. Co correct. Most at 75, and from zero to five years, um, it would be 10%. Co correct. Know, or so it would be a little higher if you're tier one. In other words, the average monthly salary are the numbers in the middle column, and the average monthly final average salary are the numbers on the right hand uh, column. Okay, that make makes sense, thank you. Uh, please. So is, is there a deadline that we must post a tracker by? No, but we just wanted to make the call that that, that change will be made. I, I'd rather not have to come back here okay. to bring mm -hmm. the, the next uh, Well, I, I think I see where Maytac is going with this. I'm wondering, since there are a couple of things we need to check and change, can we simply approve this next month and we have a final clean version? Uh, you, you certainly could do that. I don't, I honestly don't think it's, it's necessary, but if that's what you prefer, certainly we can do that. Um, that would be my preference. Is sure, there, no, that's is, the, is there a motion? Your preference, so that's fine. Oh, you can just go ahead and defer it. I, I can just defer it, okay. Deferred. Um, great. <laughs> Those probably need to be we have updated and improved. We to change the pictures. Yes. Uh, I believe, have we authorized the use of uh, any hey, Photoshop? Uh, <laughs> okay. Was that when I had a full head of hair? Uh, okay, with that and all levity aside, it is time to go to closed session. Recording stopped.
the public portion of the meeting. And I believe Recording the next. Recording in progress. Thank you. I believe the next agenda item is three death and survivorship. Uh, we have a moment of silence for those who have served the city and who have passed. Thank you. Uh, the um, next item oh, before is. Before we, um, pardon me. Um, before we move on from the closed session item, I just want to note for the record that Reed Smith has recused herself from the closed session item, as well as uh, I do want to ask if there is any reportable action. There are no reportable actions, and yes, thank you for pointing that out. And uh, Reed Smith was recused from the closed session. Um, Mr. Pena. Yes. No, I. I don't. Just wanted to remind you about item 1A, which is the application for the change in status for service connection disability. Oh, do we need a separate vote on that? Yeah, that is that is not part of the consent, so it needs to be uh, I approved see. separately. Okay, yes. thank you for that observation. You're welcome. Um, so this is, uh, there was, I guess, a disability hearing, and the uh, disability committee recommended denial uh, for this application. Uh, so we need a motion and vote yes, to approve. Yes, obviously that any discussion mm -hmm. or any questions. Okay. Otherwise, uh, is there is there any discussion or comment on item one A? So we would need a motion uh, to approve the denial, as recommended by the disability committee. Do I have? I'll move that motion, uh, Mr. Chair. Thank Second. you. So that's Second. we have a motion from. Trustee Linder, second from uh, Trustee Faulkner. Any uh, discussion, any public comment? If not, then uh, Vice Chair Jennings, how do you vote? Aye. Trustee Abbott? Aye. Trustee Avasti? Aye. Trustee Chandra? Aye. Trustee Faulkner? Aye. Trustee Linder? Aye. And I vote aye as well, so the denial is approved. And now, at long last, we come to item 4A. Mm -hmm which is an oral update from our CIO. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. We, we, we did, it was approved. Yeah. yeah, we just snuck that one back in. Thank you, good morning trustees, and for the nth time, Happy New Year. Um, I was told I can say that till 31st. We do, we have a very light agenda. We have, we, we do have a presentation by the CIO of Morgan Stanley uh, to give a macro overview of the markets. He is not available till 10 o'clock, so at 10 he will call in. Uh, meanwhile, I do have some numbers. Uh, the Fed pension system was up 2.93% fiscal year to date as of two days ago, and the healthcare trust was up 2.1%. Uh, these are from Makita. And also, for the record, I wanted to note my appreciation and thanks and gratitude to Council Lederman, this being his last meeting, I believe, at San Jose, and I have benefited immensely from his his wise counsel in the last six years, so we will miss you mm -hmm. heartily. With that, I'm happy to take on questions. I will come back at 10 uh, okay. when, when Morgan Stanley is back on, and I'll introduce the speaker at that time. Uh, well, let me, A, uh, echo the sentiments of, of Mr. Polani in thanking Mr. Lederman for long and wise service uh, to the board and uh, hope he will remain in our Rolodex for future consultation, as the case may be. Um, I did have a question about the numbers. I, it seems we're running about somewhat less than 50% beta to uh, 
U.S. public markets, and in the past we've run at a higher beta. I assume that's largely because private markets are still in the mode of being marked down, but I don't know if you had any further comment on, on why the numbers yeah, are Yeah, I mean, these, firstly, I would take these numbers with a, with a grain of salt. These are mm -hmm. very approximate numbers, and mm -hmm. these are as of two days ago. We've had a rough start to January mm -hmm. uh, in terms of the broad U.S. markets. Mm -hmm. If you factor in today's performance, we probably look a little bit better. So mm -hmm. these are very rough numbers, which directionally, you know, we want to know where we are. But you are right that private markets are lagged, and these don't take into account uh, mm -hmm. the private market effects. Okay. Any other questions from trustees or from the public? Anybody online have their hand raised? No? Okay. Um, so we will delay item uh, 4B for the moment and move on to, and since there's no old business, we'll go to new business, uh, oral update from Mr. Pena. Thank you, Mr. Chair. <coughs> if you bear with me, just a couple of comments. Uh, so this is January, which means the staff is working on the retirees 1099 for calendar year 2023, and uh, they will be mailed at the end of uh, this month. The guarantee purchasing power for 2023, which is a, a benefit uh, that actually bring uh, retirees to a 75% of the purchase, um, purchasing power protection uh, based on the year of retirement, <coughs> that will be actually included in their paychecks for February. The calculation has been completed and we received that from Chiron. Uh, a couple of more items. The city COVID-19 mandatory vaccination policy was discontinued uh, effective January 1st. Just wanted to let you know. Our offices will be closed on February 9th, uh, Lunar New Year, and also on Monday, February 19th for President's Day. The January edition of the newsletter has been mailed, so you should have uh, been able to see it by now. Um, I also wanted to let you know that the City Information and System Security Policy 1.76 uh, that was recently adopted by both boards was revised on December 5th um, by the City to, uh, to add a requirement that departments uh, with a dedicated IT team, which ORS has, designate a cyber security uh, person to ensure compliance with City standards and we have designated our IT manager. Um, she'll be um, Dwayne as the cybersecurity manager for our office. Um, lastly, in closing, uh, I just wanted to echo the words by our CIO in regards to Harvey. I met Harvey some 21 years ago. Um, I knew of him many years before uh, from the 1990s from Orange County and his work at Orange County and uh, litigations all across the state uh, back then uh, for retirement uh, systems. And it's been a, a real pleasure working with you, Harvey. Um, in fact, uh, I am here today in Grand Park because Harvey reached out to me to my old job back home in Puerto Rico to let me know that this position was coming up uh, available and if I was interested in applying. So, um, I will not take the blame for that. <laughs> <laughs> so again, it's been a real pleasure uh, working with you for the last 20-some uh, years. Uh, you have been 
uh, instrumental uh, in a lot of the jobs that I have worked on with the boards. Uh, I, I always have found that your, not only your legal analysis and input has been helpful, but I think I have shared with you in the past, you have also offered uh, recommendations and suggestions that, uh, that goes beyond the legal analysis, uh, and I've always been very thankful for that. So. Um, again, it's been a pleasure, and uh, honestly, from the bottom of my heart, I wish you a very long and healthy retirement, and just a reminder that these are public meetings. If <laughs> you find yourself at home with nothing to do, <laughs> you're certainly welcome to show up. You could do it by Zoom, but you could also take a ride and sit down here and get some coffee and make some comments mm -hmm. from the public. So best of luck to you, and thank you. Can I just add on a personal note? I know everyone's spoken on behalf of the plan, but it was drinking from a fire hose when I first joined the board, and you were incredibly helpful. I think I finally had the hieroglyphics of Chiron figured out, um, but you were definitely <laughs> instrumental in helping me understand the whole actuarial world. And when I joined, we had the uh, overpayments <coughs> debacle. <laughs> so uh, I had to have a lot of sidebars with Harvey, for which I'm grateful. <laughs> okay, well, thank you, Mr. Pena. Are there any other questions or comments from trustees? Any questions or comments from the public? If not, we'll move on to 6B, which is an oral update from City Council. I see that Councilmember Davis is not here. Is there anyone from office to? Okay. Okay. Well, then indeed, it is time for Chiron, uh, item 6C, discussion and action on the final OPEB valuation. Let the hieroglyphics begin. Yeah, we've got new hieroglyphics for you. <laughs> <laughs> just, just give us some hand signs. Yeah, <laughs> Wait, Harvey. So uh, we're here with the final results of the 2023 OPEB valuation. Uh, this is the end of our regular actuarial schedule. So uh, we'll do oh, that. That means time's up. Time's <laughs> up, yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that. My apologies. I'm not going well. uh, We also have a, a short letter with our five-year projections that are used for city budgeting. But uh, the primary thing we have is the final OPEB valuation results. And uh, so just like with the pension plan, uh, the main purpose of this valuation is to set the contribution rates for fiscal year end 2025. There are a couple differences uh, with the OPEB compared to the pension. One is that we are only determining the city contributions. The member contributions are fixed in statute. Uh, so they're just fixed at 7.5%. What we do does not affect their contributions. The uh, other thing to keep in mind is this plan is largely closed. Um, the full benefits are only available to Tier 1 members who did not elect 
to join the VEBA. So it's a closed and shrinking uh, group, unlike the other uh, plans. There is a catastrophic uh, benefit, but only for service-connected disability, and it only provides benefits to age 65, so it's a very small uh, benefit. So the plan is primarily uh, closed. There are also um, two pieces, really, to the benefit. There's the explicit subsidy. We provide a, a premium subsidy uh, for retirees. But there's also an implicit subsidy that is paid by the city through its active health premiums. And it's because the retirees are generally older than active members and their health care costs are generally higher. Uh, and, and so that implicit subsidy, we occasionally mention it, but it's not part of the pre-funding. It's on a pay-as-you-go basis. So our focus is primarily on uh, that explicit subsidy, the premium subsidy. Uh, we showed you uh, these numbers uh, last month in the preliminary. Nothing has really changed. Uh, the chart on the left shows the, the liability measures in the bars and the assets uh, as the line. Both went up this last year, but the liabilities went up faster than, than the assets. Uh, and so as a result, on the right-hand side, uh, we have the contributions. Uh, and the contributions are higher than we had projected in the last valuation, um, but not, not a whole lot higher. The other thing I'd note that is also different with the OPEB plan is you see the red line at the bottom there. <coughs> that represents the normal cost. That's the cost of uh, benefits for the next year of service, and the member contributions are more than that cost. So the members are paying all of the normal cost plus a portion of the unfunded liability and the city is city's entire contribution is going to reduce the unfunded liability. Uh, the last thing I do want to point out here uh, is back on the left slide. Uh, the scale here is quite different than the pension plan. We are looking at a total of I think it's 630 million in liability as opposed to uh, the 5 billion uh, plus for the pension plan. So this is a much, much smaller program um, which might not always come be clear from our charts. Uh, he, here we're showing the uh, Changes in the UAL. On the right-hand side, we show the changes from last year to this year. Uh, and so contributions worked to reduce the UAL. We had some investment gains. The big thing that increased the, the UAL was the liability experience. That's primarily premium increases. Uh, and then we also had some assumption changes that slightly increased it. On the left-hand side, we're showing historical changes to the UAL, and right now I've just highlighted the liability experience. So I wanted to note that this year we had uh, an increase in liability uh, for the liability experience, but for the prior five years, that's been a reduction in liability. So uh, this is, you know, we've had really good premium experience over the last uh, five, six years. This year was the exception. It's come back. Uh, if you look historically at 
what's happened with investment gains and losses. Uh, it's been uh, much less uh, consistent. We've got a couple gains there, particularly 2021, uh, but then those gains were largely offset in 2022. I think, yeah, we had 58 million there and 62 million uh, lost. We've also had over the history uh, several assumption changes that have worked to increase the UAL. Uh, and really the other piece that has worked to drive the UAL down has been the contribution policy. We've been contributing enough to try and drive that UAL down. So um, there was a benefit change, that's the in lieu program back in 2018, and you can see the net impact uh, over the years. I'm gonna turn it to Taylor now. So we, this is, we looked at this slide on the preliminary results as well. Um, so this is it's reiterated here. Um, I just point out a few things. Uh, the first is uh, the steady decline in active members eligible for full benefits, as well as a decline over the years um, in non-Medicare eligible retirees. Uh, so, and that's the, dark, that's the darkest green section of the bars there. The Medicare eligible retirees have increased over the years steadily, uh, and that's the, the next, the, the middle green, green bar there, um, starting with 1,864 in 2017, and two increasing to 2,311 in 2023. This is a, another look at um, membership. And on the left-hand side there, you can see the distribution of active members uh, between members eligible for a catastrophic, catastrophic disability and members eligible for the full benefits. Um, and it's broken out by age band. You can also see how the members eligible for full benefits compares to the prior year. And the prior year levels are shown by those uh, dark blue diamonds. So you can see that those decreased at, at pretty much every age band in the current year. On the right hand side um, is the distribution of retired members by age band um, in the prior year in the current year. And you'll notice at the younger ages the the numbers have decreased in the current year. Um, so basically everyone that's non-Medicare eligible, so that's consistent with what we, the trends that we were seeing on the prior slide. And at the older ages, they've increased. Now this slide shows projected benefit payments over the next, over the <laughs> coming period of time. Um, so the dark, the dark green on the bottom is, non is payments for non-Medicare eligible retirees. And you can see that increase slightly as per capita costs increase, but the counts are decreasing, so that's offsetting some of that increase. Whereas the Medicare eligible benefits are increasing substantially and becoming a larger and larger portion of the benefit as the number of Medicare eligible retirees increases along with the per capita increase. Um, and you can see, despite the large number of members eligible for catastrophic disability, that's a very small part of the liability. 
Okay, so this one's going to look, this slide's looking at the projected assets and liabilities. So the graph on the left, uh, the bars are your liabilities, and the uh, green line is your assets. Um, so what you can see is uh, you've got your assets, they're increasing at a very steady rate, and then they suddenly start decreasing in 2038. And It'll be a little more apparent in the next slide uh, why that is, but what it is is your contributions are um, still pretty high until that point because you're paying off the 2017 uh, UAL base, and once that's paid off, the contributions are going to decrease, so your assets will start decreasing with it. Um, your regarding your liabilities, um, it's going to increase um, for the next uh, nine years before it starts decreasing, um, and it's got a peak. Uh, in uh, 2032 of about uh, $708 million. So uh, as Bill pointed out, uh, just to remember that the scales of these graphs are very different if you're looking at the pension plan versus the OPEB. So even though now the funding ratio of the, of the plans are very, very similar, you know, it's 59% as of this valuation date, um, that which is very similar to the funding ratio of the pension plan, uh, the actual UAL, the unfunded dollar amount, is significantly different between the two plans. So OPEB, you have about $260 million, uh, versus pension, which is over $2 billion. So just to bear in mind um, how the different axes of the graph affect that. So here's just a... This is a breakdown of the amortization basis. So, as you know, you reset it and you have the, you have the 2017 UAL base um, that's getting paid off, and then it's a layered approach each year. So that top uh, goal, uh, red bar, the deep red bar, that's your 2017 UAL payments. You can see how your contributions are going to stay high until that's paid off in 2038, and in which case the contribution amount is going to drop significantly. And another thing what you can look at over there is that all the bases created since 2017, um, they're kind of offsetting each other. So um, at that point, your UAL uh, amortization payment actually hovers around uh, the $0 mark. So uh, just to bear in mind. I mean, here's the projected contribution. So it's, uh, this is the dollar amount, not the uh, contribution rates. So uh, a couple of things to point out on here is that uh, the contribution, the city's contribution amount is going to increase over the next three years, and that's as um, the newest uh, two 2023 base is uh, phased in. So with your amortization policy, you phase it in uh, for three years at the beginning and then phase it out for three years at the end. Um, so what you can see here is that the contributions the member contributions, as we discussed, because it's a closed plan, are going to steadily decrease. It does, uh, if you're looking at the, the graph, it does look like your city contributions are decreasing, but they're actually increasing a little bit. Um, you can see that the gold bars get slightly wider until you pay off that 2017 UAL base. Another thing in this graph is you can see the benefit payments versus the contribution amounts. You can see right now they're pretty close together, but there's going to be a huge difference uh, over time. It's, that difference is going to increase significantly. Um, it's not something to be concerned about. It's just you want to uh, you're going to want to pay attention to it because uh, you're going to have to manage the liquidity of the assets of the plan so that you have um, 
so that you're able to pay those benefits. So I think uh, that's all we have on the valuation. We'll take any questions. Great. Thank you. Are there any questions from trustees? Uh, <laughs> so measure. Okay, so the, for this plan, the the um, there were a lot of things in Measure F, but the reason we reference it is prior to that, uh, the contributions for this plan were negotiated, uh, they were collectively bargained, and they were not actuarially determined. So starting with Measure F, it fixed the member contribution as the 7.5% of pay and gave this board the authority to set the funding policy and create an actuarially determined contribution. And so that's why um, that we refer to that 2017 UAL because when we started, we took that UAL and set up an amortization payment to pay it off and then have building, been building since then. That's helpful, thank you. Okay, any other questions from trustees? Any questions or comments from the public? Anybody online? No? All right, well thank you. Uh, um, it says discussion and action, so do we need to accept yes. the report? Yes. Okay, so do we have a motion to accept the final OPEB valuation results? We have a motion from uh, Trustee Abbott. Do we have a second? I second. We have a second from Trustee Avasti. Any discussion on the motion? Uh, hearing none, we will vote. Uh, Vice Chair Jennings? Aye. Trustee Abbott? Aye. Trustee Avasti? Aye. Trustee Chandra? Aye. Trustee Faulkner? Aye. Trustee Linder? Aye. And I vote aye as well. The report is accepted. Um, I think we have time while Chiron is here to go to uh, 6D which is uh, merely discussion on the five-year city uh, pension and OPEB contribution projections. Yeah, so I just brought up the letter here. I'm not actually going to go through it unless you have questions, mm -hmm. but uh, this is a letter we provide every year that breaks down the contributions over the next mm -hmm. five years for both the pension and the OPEB uh, into various components. It's primarily used by the city in their budgeting process, um, but it just uh, reiterates the um, and collects the information from both valuation reports that you've seen the last two months. Okay, any questions from trustees on the five-year projection? Or from members of the public? Okay, hearing none, I guess uh, thank you for that presentation, Mr. Hallmark. Thank you, and Happy New Year, New Year everyone. Okay, okay. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I see at this moment that uh, Council Liaison uh, Davis has entered the room, and we passed over her uh, usual agenda item, but we will give her a chance for her to address us with any oral update from the City Council. kicks off our, our budget season um, with a discussion of kind of what the past year looked like and then we will receive in usually in early February 
um, the outlook, the economic outlook, and the projected budget outlook for the next five years. So we're getting started with budget season. Okay, thank you. Yeah, I'd just like to add thank you, mm -hmm. uh, Councilmember Davis. <coughs> she mentioned the five-year, this is a five-year report, this is just for federated, and I, <coughs> I forwarded that this morning to the budget director for the city, so he's, he has information now, and uh, once police and fire is available, we'll do the same. So they will certainly mm -hmm. use that information mm -hmm. as part of the work that they do for the city council. Mm -hmm. uh, your comments raise an interesting question. You, you, the city council gets a set of economic assumptions. Uh, I wonder if our economic assumptions are the same as the city's. And what are the sources of those economic assumptions? That's a great question and would be uh, wonderfully answered, I'm sure, by our budget director, Jim Shannon. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I, I, I'll make that inquiry. He, or, or he actually mm -hmm. kicks in, and mm -hmm. Councilmember Davis can speak mm -hmm. about this a lot more eloquent than I can, but mm -hmm. he's asking. I, I can add a little bit. Oh, well then. Okay. Uh, Vice Chair Jennings, and I would like Mr. Pena to finish his thought, but. No, what I was mm -hmm. going to say is that he actually takes. Uh, Roberto, can you speak into your mic? I can't. Oh. Yes, I apologize, Trustee Jennings. Um, he takes information of the mm -hmm. economic. Uh, um, estimate going forward and provides the city council some estimates on the impact of uh, revenue for the city, how that so impacts sales tax and everything else. So that's that's the extent. And, 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 and who is the he you refer to? Uh, Jim Shannon, uh, budget okay. director for the for the for the city. Okay. Yes. Yeah. But uh, I don't and know if you want know. anything else, uh, Trustee Jennings. Jim Shannon gets uh, reports. Um, they have an outside consultant that's been helping them uh, with the revenue um, indicators uh, probably for quite some time. I believe this person used to work with Jennifer McGuire when she actually did the job. So, um, and then it's uh, pulled together by Jim's office. Uh, they put together uh, a five-year forecast uh, that is used for the uh, revenue um, forecasts which help build the budget um, they're already working on it I have indicators uh, I do the capital budget for Parks and Rec and um, we've already received some preliminary numbers um, and bring that into account when we meet with council such as council member Dave um, so it's it's a long process, um, usually um, done from that side. Um, our vendors are separate, you know, the board versus not. We're an input into the process. And so what we determine, what Chiron pulls together, then that gets incorporated into that. Mm -hmm. But we are very separate. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. Any other trustee questions or comments? Uh, for uh, Councilmember Davis, any any members of the public wishing to inquire? Okay, thank you. We will. I believe we just have enough time. If six E is a quick one, um, discussion and action to authorize the CEO to negotiate an agreement between the board and uh, risk strategies for insurance brokerage services. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so this item is to request approval of a new five-year contract with risk strategies for insurance broker services for a maximum contract of $300,000 to be split with police and fire. 
Back of, um, in August of last year, we issued an RFP for insurance broker services, but no bids were um, received. So um, the RFP was issued in response to the internal auditor's findings from one of his audits. However, the amounts listed in the report included the insurance premiums and not just the payment for services. So it was a lot more than what it really is. So after um, we narrowed down the cost to just the payment for the insurance broker services, it was determined that under city policies, policies these should be done under an RFQ, request for quote, um, since it falls between 10000 and 140000 so in that case, we issued an RFQ and we received two, <coughs> excuse me, two bids, one from Risk Strategies and one from um, Epic Brokers. Um, risk Strategies came in lower at $50,000 um, per year. So we're um, requesting that we go with um, <coughs> Risk Strategies and uh, approve this agreement. Okay, thank you. Any questions from trustees, uh, from members of the public? So I guess we need a motion to uh, accept uh, this uh, insurance bid. Do I have such a motion? I'll so move. We have a motion from Trustee Abbott. Do we have a second? I'll second. We have a second from uh, Trustee Chandra. Any discussion on the motion? Any public comment? Uh, we will vote. Vice Chair Jennings? Aye. Uh, Trustee Abbott? Aye. Trustee Avasti? Aye. Trustee Chandra? Aye. Trustee Faulkner? Aye. Trustee Linder? Aye. And I vote aye as well. Uh, the contract is approved. M Mr. Chair, yes. I know you want to take a few minutes break before the next item. Mm -hmm. We don't have to discuss it now. We can do it after the presentation. But mm -hmm. I misspoke uh, the question that was asked by council on the PAFR. Uh, if we delay to February, um, we got an extension for filing all the information um, through the end of the month in January 31st. So if, if it's deferred to next month, we will have to request an extension. And what I will I will respectfully request is uh, Benji is here now. Uh, we can discuss it now. We can discuss it after the presentation by uh, uh, by the investment uh, manager. But quickly, um, the two points I wanted to make to you question, you are correct. The reason this year 2023 is included is because of the timing. We had information prior to finalizing the pathway, so we included it. So that answers that question. If you goes to the table, the numbers are correct. They were just whatever you want to call it, inverted, switch. So all we're going to do is switch the numbers under the right column, that's it. So with mm -hmm. that, I will hope that you will consider approving the path for now. We're happy to answer any questions, uh, but I'll, you know, if I'm, Benji's here and she can provide more okay. detail to it, thank you. Okay, Th thank you for those clarifications. Um, do trustees have any questions, further questions about the path for then with those clarifications? Uh, Trustee Faulkner. Yes, just a quick one. Um, it sound, from my understanding, it sounds like switching the two columns. Um, just curious if, according to that, the bottom two columns, the average monthly final salary would be lower than the average monthly benefit. Just wanted to confirm that that would be the case, as was mentioned that typically the average monthly final salary is higher than the average monthly benefit. Yes, that would be correct. The numbers would be correct. Um, and Kyron can answer that question, yeah, so why it would be more. I think the short answer to your question, which is a very fair question, is that um, their benefit increases with uh, credit service up to 75%. 
Um, I think these monthly benefits, and correct me, I'm not really sure, it includes cost of living increases that have been earned over time. Benji, do they? That is correct. It that includes correct. COLA, yes. So when you account for the fact that those are higher benefits and then you have been retired for some time and you include the cost of living increases to a higher base, that's why for the 26 to 30 and 31 years, you will see that the actual benefit exceeds the average monthly salary. Good to be retired. It doesn't exceed. It's good to be retired for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, was there a follow-up, Mr. Faulkner? No, that, no okay. I just wanted to confirm sure. that that was yeah, the, the switch all the way across. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, so with that, I will entertain a motion to uh, accept the PAFR and approve the PAFR. Do I hear such a motion? A motion to accept. All right. We have a motion from Vice Chair Jennings. A second? I'll second. We have a second from Trustee Abbott. If there's any public questions or discussions, any further discussions on the motion? Hearing none, uh, we'll, we will vote. Uh, Vice Chair Jennings? Aye. Uh, Trustee Abbott? Aye. Trustee Avasti? Aye. Trustee Chandra? Aye. Trustee Faulkner? Aye. Trustee Linder? Aye. And I vote aye as well, so the PAFR is approved. Thank you. Thank you. And with that, um, I see we have five minutes to the top of the hour, and we have a time certain item at 10 o'clock, so let us take a five minute recess and reconvene at 10 o'clock. Recording stopped. Sorry, what is the time certain item?
the public portion of the meeting. You can go back on the clock. <laughs> so we are returning to item uh, item 4B, which is a market overview from Morgan Stanley. Uh, do you want to yes. introduce the... Uh, Principles, uh, Mr. Yes. Pani. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And before I do, I do want to let the board know, uh, two weeks ago at the police and fire board meeting, we had Professor Myron Schultz present uh, to the board. And uh, he's a professor at Stanford, uh, an emeritus professor at Stanford. And he's also one half of the Black Schultz option pricing model that's widely used. And a 1997 recipient of the Nobel Prize for Economics. Mm -hmm. He gave a superb presentation on the evolution of risk management and okay. so if you have time, I would urge trustees to go and watch that recording. It's about 45 minutes. Really very, very well done presentation on how pensions should think about risk management. Okay. That sounds very interesting. And, and my only regret is why we don't have them here at, at Well, Elbow. I was going to say you have an equally distinguished guest here. Yeah, of course. Uh, talking to your board. Uh, and I'm going to, uh, I'm sure Rui is on screen, um, but before I hand it over to him, I'm going to introduce him very briefly. Like Professor Scholz, he has a very long bio, but I'm going to shorten it in the interest of time. Uh, so we are thrilled to have uh, Rui Figueredo, who's the co-head and chief investment officer of the Solutions and Multi-Asset Group at Morgan Stanley Investment Management today. Uh, he's also a member of the Global Investment Committee at Morgan Stanley and of the Investment Management Operating Committee. And he has 20 years, 26 years of industry experience. And prior to joining Morgan Stanley in 2007, he led research on behalf of City Alternative Investments. And prior to Citigroup, he was a case leader at the Boston Consulting Group as well as the Alliance Consulting Group. Uh, he has published extensively in finance, economics, law, and political science. Uh, he is also an associate professor emeritus of the graduate school and previously a tenured professor at the Haas School of Business, UC Berkeley. Uh, Rui holds an AB degree from Harvard and a PhD from Stanford. Uh, with that, uh, I'm going to turn this over to Rui and his colleagues at Morgan Stanley. Well, thanks, everyone. It's, it's a real pleasure to be here and, and an honor to present to you. I, I will say, despite what Prabhu said, I've neither won a Nobel Prize or had a uh, formula named after me, so I feel a little <laughs> bit intimidated with that introduction. But but thank you so much. Um, just, um, there's still time. Yeah, there's still time. <laughs> there's still time. Hang in exactly. there. Exactly. 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 There's always hope. Um, but, but thank you very much, and I know that um, you know, part of what I wanted to do was just to give you a little bit of background. I spend a lot of my time, as Prabhu knows, uh, in my role at Morgan Stanley, working with and speaking with uh, large asset owners around the world, pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, endowments and foundations. I also, um, as part of my role, is am actively involved in managing portfolios. Uh, so very much, you know, that are multi-asset, that are, you know, uh, outsourced to Morgan Stanley. And so very much in the sitting in the same seat as Prabhu and others in terms of how should you know, we be thinking about allocating assets over time. Um, and so with that in mind, what I thought I would do, and I, I think Prabhu, I have about 30 minutes included questions. So I'll try to hit on sort of what I think are sort of some of the big themes, both that, you know, I think that are necessary to be dealt with, 
that we're dealing with in our portfolios, thinking about, and also issues that are related to uh, that you know asset owners that are similarly uh, positioned as as uh, San Jose for thinking about sort of the forward-looking environment. Okay, so with that in mind, I'm not going to go. We circulated a presentation. I'm not going to go through it page by page, but I'm going to try to bring out what I think might be some relevant themes uh, that you um, all should be thinking about, and that others, you know, that are uh, positioned uh, have have been talking about as well. So broadly speaking, and I think David uh, Biltikoff, who's my colleague, uh, who works with uh, with our uh, large asset owner partners in the West Coast, is is on with me, and he's he's going to share the screen. If you just turn to page uh, five, David, I'm going to start by just giving kind of a quick overview about the sort of the macro backdrop, but then I'll try to drive it down to some of the themes that I think are are, are most important. Um, so number one is like if you think about the sort of very, I'll try to signal a little bit about, give you an overview about what are the topics that I intend to talk about. I mean, I think broadly speaking, you know, sort of the market environment has been shifting pretty dramatically, even in the last few days, right? If you went back to the end of 2022, everybody was very negative and thinking about, you know, all of the talk was about hard landing. And then gradually over time, you know, that's shifted pretty dramatically to the end of 2023 to a much more sort of muted sort of picture much more weight put on the possibility of a soft landing or even Goldilocks type of outcome. Now, even with the recent data that we've seen as we started 2024, people are starting to sort of rethink that again, right? And so, you know, there has been, you know, one of the things that's really been notable as we've come out of the pandemic is that things have shifted pretty dramatically. Like sentiment has moved pretty dramatically uh, on, on, you know, from quarter to quarter, from year to year and so on. And so where does that put us now? And I think that, you know, broadly speaking, we, you know, our view is, you know, number one, that the downside has become more muted, right? That it's not that we're out of the woods, that we might not have a, a slowdown, even a recession, but that the downside for that, you know, if we compare that to some of our experiences, you know, in the dot-com collapse or the GFC, essentially seems like less of a, uh, less of an issue. And within that, one of the kind of crucial things is that the Fed, in some sense, is in a different position than it was in 2020, right? Where, you know, they had very little room to move rates down. They had expanded, you know, QE had been going on for a long time. They have corrected some of that. And so, you know, when you think about dry powder, we usually talk about dry powder in the context of investments. If you think about dry powder in the context of uh, central banks, they have more degrees of freedom if sort of the sort of negative outcomes are worse than than what the market um, thinks. So that's number one, which is that, you know, in some sense, the growth picture seems, you know, better than it has been over the last, uh, uh, you know, from two years ago with a lot of negative sort of uh, sentiment built into both the economic outlook and the markets. So that's number one. Second point is, you know, even, you know, saying that, the two other things you have to think about are, you know, where are, the risks to that view. One is inflation. And I think people have gotten excited about how quickly inflation has come down, whether you look at you know, core or, or uh, other measures of inflation. But it is our view that in, while we've had disinflation, it becomes harder and harder to bring it down even further, right? The last 25, 50 basis points above target is much harder than going from 10 to eight. And so we're likely to see more inflation you know, persist than maybe what the market was building in, I'd say, 
six weeks ago where they were thinking about rate cuts being pretty aggressive. And then finally, you have to think about what does that all mean for the valuation context. And in the valuation context, you know, the second half of last year, particularly the last quarter, in some sense reflected those two points, and particularly the first point, which was you know, a more muted uh, downside. And that also pulled forward much of the valuation into the markets. So you put that together, you say, well, the macro environment seems somewhat tepid, actually better than maybe what a lot of people thought you know, at the beginning of last year. But at the same time, you know, the, the fact that, that we have inflation, that we have some growth risk, and that we have you know, sort of a valuation issue sort of maybe tempers your view about both what you think about on duration, what you think about inflation hedging, and or what you think about markets. So that's kind of the big picture, and I'll go through some examples of that in a second, but then, then I'll, I'll try to turn to some very specific topics from asset allocation that I think are also relevant. You know, one of them being, how do we think about diversification? So one of the big lessons in, in uh, 2022 that a lot of people took away, I think actually in some sense overcorrected for, was the fact that diversification failed. So I'll spend some time when we talk about the fixed income side talking about that topic, which is, I think, at the center of a lot of discussions around asset allocation. And then finally, I'll, I'll spend some time on private markets talking about both themes in private markets and then sort of where we see both the opportunities and risks in private markets, which is an area we really focus on and, and have a framework for talking about tactics. So that's broadly where I'll go. If we, if we go uh, maybe to uh, page one, oh, sorry, the next page, sorry, page six. Um, you know, I'll, I'll start off and just go through a couple of those points with some data. I mean, if you look at the data, right, it is certainly the case that the macro data has, in some sense, surprised the market, so far more supporting kind of a Goldilocks outcome, low inflation, low rates, positive growth, um, over the last, you know, 12 months, right? You can see that on the left-hand side, we show, you know, there the positive GDP growth estimates have been revised upward, which basically reflect, you know, that gray sort of block, which is that we keep on getting positive economic surprises. It's also been the case that progress on disinflation has been much more rapid probably than what anyone expected, right? You can see that um, it's definitely disinflation progress is even stronger than the growth surprise. So that's all good, right? Like that's what created that sort of ebullience, I'd say, in November and December of last year. If you jump to the next page, you know, one of the key points here is that consumption has continued to be a key positive driver of that surprise in 2023. And we put a bunch of data, you know, here, but if you think about, you know, one of the big stories coming out of the pandemic was that there was excess savings. You know, a lot of the consumption has been driven by, you know, dissaving and, and, and undersaving relative to that excess saving that was happening in 2020 and 2021, right? Um, the job market has surprised to the positive. That has also supported consumption, real wage growth. All of that has meant, you know, consumption has been a big driver of the uh, uh, positive surprises on the, on the previous page. And so one of the questions that you might ask is, okay, what does that look like going forward? And you know, we have probably positive fiscal stimulus, we have positive, um, you know, sort of uh, uh, job market surprise, you know, some wage growth maybe tempering a little bit. All of that means that it's likely that sort of, again, that downside scenario is not as negative as some of the other cycles that we've seen. So that's on the macro side. In the interest of time, I'm gonna skip forward to um, uh, page 11. I have one question. It's yeah, one sure. of the things that I have 
um, heard is that we're starting to see more defaults on the part of consumers, so that some of the things that were causing um, some positive things may in fact be um, those factors with um, consumers being able to spend um, may not continue, and I'm wondering what you think about that. Yeah, look, I think, you know, when we think about defaults, whether it's corporate, and I think the consumer default side is, yeah. is correct, there's no question that those things are slowly ticking up, right? And I think that that's true, right? The, the question is like, how high are they going to go, right? Yeah. There's no question that we're going to have, we are coming off of such a low default rate, both on the corporate side and the consumer side, that it's almost asymmetric, it has to go up. Yeah. And as the, you know, the Fed is trying to slow down the economy. I mean, part of this is basically, how finally can they slow down the economy? But assuming that they can slow down the economy some, we should see uh, uh, default rates, both on the consumer side and on the corporate side, tick upwards, right? They're gonna meet revert. The real question is like, how high do they go, right? And I'll yeah. talk a little bit about this when we, we think about distressed, um, you know, credit as a opportunity or, you know, I don't think that we're, I think we are gonna see uh, economic slowdown. Mm -hmm. The question is how, you know, is it likely to be like what they're talking about, like something where we go into a recession? And I think we might see, you know, modest negative growth, but it's just not going to be a large negative shock is my point. I still am relatively um, sort of tepid about growth going forward in 24 and 25. I think we will see a growth slowdown. It's just more about how bad is the downside is basically the point that I was making. And I think the point that you make about consumer defaults and, and also corporate defaults is, is likely to, to, to increase. I mean, so that affects positioning a little bit vis-a-vis -vis credit. Thank you. Um, so if we, Actually, why don't we turn to page 12, just in the interest of time. I, I want to emphasize, you know, another point, which is, you know, we do expect disinflation to continue, right? The, these inflation pressures, some of which are supply side, some of which are demand side, um, are receding, certainly the supply side in particular. Um, there's also some downward pressure on shelter, CPI, you know, probably driven by, you know, uh, weaker wage growth, lack effects of falling rents, and so on. All of that said, right, which means that we're not likely to see a, a repeat of the spike in inflation that we saw in 2021 and 2022, doesn't mean that the Fed is going to be able to get us all the way down to yeah. target uh, quickly. And so that's another sort of, you know, in addition to what you were just saying about defaults, is a reason why we don't want to be, you know, exuberant about the forward-looking environment, right? Like they are trying to bring down inflation. My own view is that if, you, if you're sitting at the Fed and you have this asymmetry, you, you have this choice between you know, overshooting uh, on being too aggressive on inflation and undershooting, given how we arrived here, my perspective is that they're likely to be a little bit more cautious. And much of the language that you've seen from the Fed, you know, once the market came out and said, you know, we think there might be six rate cuts in, um, in, uh, in 2024, all of that is getting walked back right now. And I think that that's a reflection of that sort of asymmetry in their preferences, right? So again, the likelihood that we're gonna see, you know, dramatic, there are two, two paths to rate cuts, right? One path is we have a negative growth shock. The other one is that everybody's comfortable that inflation is retained despite growth not coming down, that we had a perfect sort of landing of the plane. And um, on that second category, which is more likely in terms of a macroeconomic scenario, uh, you know, our view is that the Fed is, is likely to cut rates, but at a slower pace than what the market was building in, like say in December, 
okay? Mm -hmm. So because I, you know, a combination of inflation is going to be somewhat persistent, right? Like particularly demand side inflation is not that easy to tame once you start a cycle. And then on top of that, put this asymmetry in where the Fed is likely to fall means that you know the rate cut, uh, the rate of rate cuts, particularly even on a path where inflation is just sort of leveling but not hitting target, is likely to be slower than at least what the market anticipated going into this year. So you know, keeping your what, what is the implication for asset allocation? It has implication for rates. It also has implication for thinking about sort of inflation hedging assets in your portfolio. So if you turn to the next page, I think maybe what I'll do is I'll go to talk a little bit about um, each of the uh, each of the asset classes, and particularly about from an asset allocation perspective. So if you turn, sorry, to the next page. Uh, um, I want to talk a little bit about fixed income and equity in the context of diversification. And I, the reason I, I want to do this is because it's a topic that I think, I'm sure you guys have been thinking about. It's definitely a topic that almost every asset owner I talked to spoke with me about consistently throughout 2023 and it persisted in 2024. And basically- I, I'm sorry, which page number you want? Sorry, on page 14. This, this page was not in your deck. I actually okay. added this afterwards. So we'll recirculate a, a version of this. You're right, thank you. Um, I added, was furiously yeah, I flipping here. It's just a couple pages that I, I put in. Um, so this is page 14 in my deck. It comes after page 13 in your deck. So one of the big questions was that if you look at 2022, this was an extremely challenged year for portfolios, sometimes called 60-40 balanced equity fixed income portfolios, because the stock and bond correlation was extremely high. And so if you look at 2022, what ended up happening was you know, stocks fell you know, close to 20%, but bonds also fell about 13%, which meant that portfolios that were diversified and using bonds as a diversifier against stocks fundamentally failed, right? And so that has caused a lot of asset owners to say, what does that mean for the future? Can we rely on that kind of diversification between equity and bonds as a way of managing you know, risk in our portfolios? And what we would say is you know, a couple points. You know, if you turn to the next page, David, what this page shows is, you know, the bonds and stock returns together, you know, over roughly a, a hundred-year period. And what you see there is that in periods where stocks fell, right, which is the likely bars, right, what did bonds do in those years? Those are all the years where stocks were negative. And in almost every year, bonds were positive, right? Whereas if you look at 2022, it was a huge outlier. Right? We had a massive fall in the stock market, 18%, but we also had a large drop in the, in the bond market. You yeah. know, here we're using the, the, the US uh, aggregate bond index, fell like 13%. So notice that that is an outlier, right? Like, and so the question is what happened? And what happened was we had a very positive, you know, to many people a surprise on inflation, which both drove up nominal rates and caused bonds to fall, but also uh, drove up uh, uh, down valuations because discount rates went up for equities. Um, but that was very unusual, okay? If we, so that level of highly correlated stocks and bonds was also very, very unusual, as you can just even see from the data on this page. If you turn to the next page and ask, okay, what does that mean going forward? I think what, what we show here is over, you know, over like a 150-year period, what is the correlation? Uh, the blue one is the uh, rolling five-year correlation, the gray one is the rolling 10-year correlation. What is the correlation between stocks and bonds over time? And what you see there is, you know, that 
One is, you know, 2022, this is a five year, but 2022 when the correlation was 0.6 was extremely unusual, right, 0.7. Um, but the second thing is, is that the period in the first part of this millennium from 2000 to 2020 was also unusual, right? The correlation between stocks and bonds for all of that period was negative, right? If you look back over the longer history, the average correlation between stocks and bonds is not negative, but it's low, right? And that's what we think, you know, in a normal inflationary environment where we don't have, you know, a secular decline in interest rates like we had in the first two decades of this millennium, you know, that is what we think we're, we're going to revert to, right? If you're looking forward and marking out your strategy, what you can say is, no, bonds do have a role. They do diversify against equities, but not at the level with which we've had in the first 20 years of this millennium. Right, it's likely you know that the stock bond correlation will be sort of something more like what's 100 year historical averages, which is something like 0.1, 0.2. So don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Don't overcorrect to 2022, but also understand that you know for much of our investment careers that the, the stock bond correlation was lower than what we would expect. Right, so you can use bonds as a diversifier, but you also need to be thinking about other sources of diversification, like alternatives, like active risk, and so on as part of a overall portfolio, diversified portfolio approach. Okay, so that's number one. If you think about risk assets, and I'll just jump to that and then I'll, I'll turn to alternatives because I know we don't have a ton of time. Um, you know, our view on risk assets is, you know, what I mentioned it before, right? And this is more of our short-term view, which is that we do think, you know, the big questions on, on equities, I think, and risk assets in general are, you know, what do you think about the forward macro picture and how does that define earnings? And then secondly, where are valuations? And I think we've included some charts here, um, but I will, um, you know, I'll, I'll just uh, refer to them verbally, is that our view is that at least in the medium, in the short to medium term, right, we think growth is gonna slow down, but not, you know, not have significant downside, right? That's, that puts some break on how bad earnings could get. We do think that there is some margin pressure from inflation that will work through the earning cycle, which is a little bit of a negative um, to uh, equity performance. And then we also think from a valuation perspective that much of the upside was pulled into the end of last year. So what we've done in our portfolios is, you know, we brought down our equity exposure, but from a position, I would say for the second half of the year being overweight. So we've started to temper towards a more neutral stance on equities because of this balance between fundamentals, downside risk, but also valuation. And that's broadly speaking where we are on equities. You know? So we've, you know, essentially what, what, what our view is on the equity and fixed income um, sort of piece of, the, of our portfolios is essentially neutralizing both, coming from below on duration on the fixed income side and coming from above on overweight to equities to bring it back to neutral, to sort of uh, position ourselves for the, sort of the current uh, economic environment. Okay, with that, I'm gonna turn to alternatives. And, and there are a couple of topics and alternatives that I wanna emphasize. Um, if here we turn to, uh, I think it's page 23 in your, in your presentation, so it'll be a couple more pages, um, David, on, on, and ours. Um, so there are a couple of major topics on alternatives and, and private markets in particular, which I wanna, I wanna hit on, right? There are, if you look at sort of asset allocation trends for private markets, there is a secular trend 
I would say, amongst asset owners and pension funds specifically, to have increased their private markets ex exposure over the last 10 to 15 years. Mm -hmm. And there's a good reason for that. I think there are two drivers of that. Driver number one is that private markets, you know, provide some premium structurally to investors that can be both active risk and also, importantly, illiquidity premiums. And many investors are below the level of illiquidity that they could tolerate, right? That combined with the fact that the private markets, you know, whether it's private equity, real estate, uh, infrastructure, private credit, have at their own pace become more and more institutionalized and have become more innovative in terms of access points, have, you know, both contributed to uh, what I would consider a, a long-term trend towards higher allocations to private markets. That's essentially the secular allocation trend. But there are also cyclical factors that are important, right? And one of them basically dates back to 2022, the so-called denominator effect. And essentially what many asset owners, and I, I'm sure you've thought about this as well, is that because of what I talked about on the equity and fixed income side, that you had this correlated shock down uh, drawdown in both equities and fixed income at the same time in that private market allocations didn't really move, right? Both uh, because of actual, you know, sort of performance, but also you could argue some stale pricing. It created a problem for many asset owners, which is the so-called denominator effect, right? That the total portfolio shrank, right? The denominator, but the market weight, or the, the capital weight in private markets, whether it's private equity or VC or real estate, stayed relatively flat. And so what that meant was that the private market allocation as a percent of the total portfolio increased dramatically, right? And so we wrote a white paper on this in early 2023, trying to disentangle what were the causes of that. How much of that was real, right? How much of that was because of change in cash flow characteristics? And how much of that was just because of mark-to-market pricing? And what we found was that it was a mix of those things, right? But that our recommendation was that many of those things would self-correct, and therefore, you know, from an asset owner, the two questions that you have to ask are, number one, what should I do if I'm facing the denominator effect, like if I'm overweight my privates? And the other one is, what implications does this have on the broader market, right? And I'll try to address both of those. Our view on the first one was that for asset owners that could, relax their guidelines and continue to allocate to private markets, that that would solve that problem over time because much of the problem that was faced with over allocation to private markets would be self-correcting. Um, but importantly, not every asset owner was doing that. You know, I spoke to a number of large institutional asset owners who basically slowed down or stopped their private markets programs so they could bring them back into balance. That has implications also for private market opportunities. If you turn to the next page, Right, so like if you look at, uh, sorry, if you go to the next page. If you look at what happened to uh, capital flows, right, um, you know, the, the number one thing is that net capital flows in, like if you look at the end of this period in the bottom right-hand chart, in most asset classes, basically slowed down, right? Mm -hmm. So that if you look at fundraising cycles for private equity or for real estate or private credit, they're slower and longer right now. And it, just to give you a piece of data, you know, our estimate is that like in private equity, for example, dry powder, which is constantly going up because the market is growing, as a percent of the NAV held in portfolios is actually at one of its lowest points in the last decade. So that has a sort of a macro effect that also maybe defines 
how you should be thinking about the private markets. You know, many people are cautious on private markets. I'll go into that uh, because they either don't have capital to deploy or because they're worried about, you know, sort of the macro environment. But one thing to think about is that, you know, as everybody does the same thing, it means that the supply of capital is much lower. And so the opportunity to get into good deals might be higher, right? And we saw that, for example, in private credit in, in uh, 2023, where at the end of 2022, because the public market leveraged finance effectively cut in half, even though we were going into an environment that was more uncertain, the terms that you could get, the risk adjustment returns you could get on private credit were much more attractive. And that's a general theme, I think, in thinking about private, uh, uh, private markets that it's important to think about, right, in terms of, number one, not slowing down in environments where other people are slowing down. That's number one. And number two is that the forward-looking environment might even you know, be more attractive as valuations come back uh, into equilibrium with public markets. So that's broadly speaking on the private markets. I can go through um, maybe a couple more slides uh, if you skip forward. Um, I'm going to skip over this. There's, we have a lot of data, but uh, in the interest of time, um, I want to. Um, wh why don't you go to uh, page 32? I think in this deck. One more. Sorry. So there's one other topic that I want to I want to raise, um, also from a secular trend point of view, and then I'll go to the market by market breakdown of our private markets perspective. So the other big topic that we have, you know, particularly because at Morgan Stanley, we have a we have a very large participation in the private markets in different ways. Obviously, our sell side, you know, advises all the big sponsors, works on M&A transactions. That's totally separate from us. But um, then our investment management business, where I sit, you know, is a major player in in private markets. But then we also have a wealth management business, which is the largest wealth management business in the world, which also is one of the largest, you know, sort of allocators in aggregate to private markets. And so a number of asset owners have come to us and said, you know, there are other trends in the private markets. I talked about two of them, increasing allocations and the denominator effect. A third one is, you know, the emergence of what we sometimes think of as the retailization of private markets. You know, for those of you on, on the board and, and on the investment team that have been observing this, you'll see that there are a lot of the larger players have started to launch vehicles really targeted at, you know, creating semi-liquid private equity or aggregating investors that typically did not have access to private equity or private real estate or private credit into to bringing them into the market. And so what the asset owners have asked us is, you know, what is the implication for us as allocators to the private markets? So the very first reaction I think that most people have is, you know, that's not a good thing as if you're a, an asset owner, right? Because now you just have more capital to deploy into the same set of deals. And I think at, you know, first brush, that's true, right? Like all of a sudden you brought in a segment that are providers of capital, you know, the, the size of the deals and so on is obviously changing the available market. But in general, you want to be in a situation where you have less competition less supply of capital rather than more. So at first face, that's that's true. But what we've seen is that if you look at, take private equity, for example, where are the exits for much of private equity, right? If Unless you're at the very, very large cap end, right? The very large private equity sponsors, the downstream mid-market, small market, whether it's in private equity, in real estate, private credit, much of their exits are actually to other sponsors. 
So having money come into the top of the funnel actually might be not that great for private equity and aggregate. It might not be that great for the large cap players because there's now more capital competing for the same deals, but could actually be a really good thing if you're operating downstream, right? Because, you know, it's essentially like a reverse, you know, food chain, right? Like the, you know, the, the mackerel meets the minnow and the, 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 uh, the tuna eats the, the mackerel and the shark eats the tuna. Well, if you're somebody who wants to be eaten, in other words, you want your company to be bought, it might actually be a good thing if there's more money in the shark you know, uh, community because there are more sharks to eat the tuna, to eat the mackerel, to eat the minnow. And so I think that what we might end up seeing is not simply a, you know, here's more dry powder, that's a bad thing for the private equity market. It might lead to more dispersion between sort of large cap and small cap for, as an example. That's an important trend in the future because of this trend of democratization of private markets. So th those are some things to think about in the long term when you think about your strategy. It's not so much do we want to allocate to private markets, but given these trends, where do we want to allocate? Do we want to be only at the large end of the cap table, or do we want to be allocating to smaller deals, smaller funds, smaller companies? Uh, okay, I have a question. Maybe I'll stop there. We have a, a page that goes through each of the private markets categories. I think if you put that up, uh, we can take that with questions, but you know we basically give our perspective on each of the categories, and I'm happy to talk about that if we have time. Rui, Rui there's a question from a yeah. board member. If I you just can speak into the yeah, mic, I, I think he can hear you. Yeah, so I just had a question about whether the, you're suggesting that it's better to get in early to funds or late to funds. It sounds like you said it might be better to get in later. What, what does that mean? Uh, early funding, you're early in the startups versus you, you go in. Maybe I didn't hear it right, but that you that you sound like you could be sending, suggesting that you might be able to go in and and buy things um, later in the funding cycle. I'm just curious if that's if I misheard. Yeah, no, I I, I didn't say that. What I, what um, what I was talking about was more about size than I was about okay stage right so what i'm saying is, is that um on this particular topic right like one of the questions i think that many owners have to deal with and i actually think you know um like if you take the really really big pension plans or sovereign wealth funds you know like hundreds of billions of dollars right they pretty much have to operate with you know just because of deployment they have to operate with the very large cap players right the players that can take you know they're raising 20 billion $30 billion funds, whether it's real estate, private equity, and so on, right? That's, and the reason is because they have to write checks that are 500 million, a billion dollars. What I'm saying is that being smaller gives certain asset owners, endowments and foundations, smaller public pension plans, the ability to allocate either to those really big funds or to smaller funds, you know, funds that are 1 billion, 2 billion, 5 billion, right? And implicitly in that, what that means is that the kind of companies that they are purchasing, say in, the, in private equity, kind of buildings that they're, or projects that they're purchasing in real estate are inherently gonna be smaller. All I was saying was that in general, like, and we've done some research on this, when you're operating it with the smaller sort of areas of the market where it's more efficient, less efficient, those tend to generate higher returns, right, than the very large cap players. That's one fact. Then on top of that, now you have this source of capital, and this is a hypothesis, that is coming in 
away from the institutional side, away from the ultra high net worth side, a new spigot of capital, but it's primarily going in to those large you know, uh, funds. So that's gonna mean more competition for deals for those large funds, but also more exits for those smaller funds to the larger funds that are gonna have more demand to buy companies out of smaller sponsors. That's basically the point I was making. Thanks. Well, thank you very much. That is uh, a lot of information uh, in a very short period of time. So I'm wondering if there are any other questions from trustees. Um, we've been drinking out of the fire hose in terms of this presentation. Sorry, sorry. Like, no, no, that's that fire hoses are good. Like, fire hoses put out fire. Could I ask one just curiosity or thought that you might have on the credit markets? So when you showed the equity, the pages we don't have, when you showed the equity um, bond relationship historically in the rolling averages, is private credit incorporated into that measure? Um, and the, this, if not, the second piece is what's the outlook in your opinion of then private credit versus non-private credit in yeah. terms of yeah, finding that's a great question. Deal. Yeah, so, so that's a great question. The answer to the first one is we're just talking about the correlation. It's not just credit, it's, it's like the aggregate, so it includes things like treasuries. So it's like a bond index that includes okay. you know, all of the investment grade, like the aggregate um, on the correlation. So that's just on the public side. Okay. The question about public versus private credit, that's a great question. And I, what I think is that, um, you know, at the moment, you know, um, there are sort of two sets of dynamics going on, both of which are tempering a little bit, right? These were much stronger going into 2023 than they are going into 2024, but are directionally the same, if not in magnitude, which is, on the one hand, you know, credit itself, like equities, is priced, you know, pretty thinly, right? Like the valuation on credit, like if you look at spreads and so on, it's assuming, you know, I think it's priced fairly, but there's, but it's not like there's some excess return given that you have to, you know, it's basically priced for the macro view that I, I mentioned. Whereas on the private credit side, it's not, there was also a supply and demand effect, right? Like all of a sudden, much of the sponsor backed financing that was done in the public markets got eliminated, right? Like the high yield and leverage loan markets issuance went, like was cut more than in half at the end of 2022. It started to temper somewhat, but not entirely. So we still, you know, if you're just thinking about credit in general, we would still favor private credit over public credit on the margin um, because of that. Although not to the same degree that we went into 2023, we're still overweight private credit. We're neutral on, on public credit. But you know, those are things that'll converge, I think, over the course of the next two years. Thank you. The other big thing on private credit, if you if you let me in, and this is a little bit uh, more nuanced answer to your question, is that you know, private credit is not a monolith, right? Like there's kind of what we think of as core private credit, which would be direct lending, you know, mes finance, real real estate debt. Um, but then there are all kinds of other, what we would consider more esoteric uh, peripheral, you know, hybrid credit where it's kind of a combination of equity and, um, and, and uh, debt, uh, you know, trade finance, uh, transportation finance, you know, consumer finance, so the question that somebody asked me about before. Um, and so our view is, sorry? No, no go ahead. No. Yeah, so our view is that private credit is still more attractive than public credit, and that within private credit, you know, the real play was in the core 
2023. Now thinking about more sort of the periphery as a balance, like more satellite types of private credit, you know, is essentially the way that people should be constructing their portfolios for 2024. And that certain areas like real estate debt, right? Um, that's likely to be sort of a more attractive area going into 2024, 2025, given some distress and given some of the trends there um, than it has been in 2023. So, you know, within the asset class, we're shifting our views um, somewhat, conditional on being overweight private credit in general. Uh, Trustee Chandra. Yeah, hi, hi everybody, it's Anurag. Um, nice hi, Anurag. Nice to see you virtually. Um, okay, I'm gonna try and limit myself to two questions. And, and, and make no commentary, because um, this is definitely, uh, you got a lot of my synapses firing after this presentation. <laughs> Why don't we, okay, okay, I here are my two. Number one, what is your opinion of the commercial real estate space uh, specifically and then any, any implications for macro across the U.S. economy or global? Yeah. Um, sorry, did you have another one? Do you want to give me both at once? Uh, the other one's going to be... Uh, PEVC, so let's just do this one first. Okay, okay, yeah, sure. I think, look, in commercial real estate, I, I think, like, if you look at the actual transaction volumes, I mean, we have direct real estate investors. It's it's hard to get price discovery right now in commercial real estate, particularly in areas like office, somewhat in retail, okay? So I think that one of the reasons, you know, the macro environment for real estate is actually not that bad, right? We've got really low unemployment. We've had some wage inflation. Um, but then there are these big, big trends in certain subsets like office, work from home, uh, retail, you know, uh, e-commerce that mean that you have to be highly selective, I think. It's not, you can't buy the beta in those sectors. And that has, um, and I don't think that that has changed. The right way to play those, I think probably in the short term is more on the debt side than the equity side. Then there are other areas like logistics, like multifamily, where the secular trends go in the opposite direction you know, where you've got uh, potential for, you know, inflation, which means the inflation hedging aspect is attractive, where, you know, again, I think it's a little bit more of an alpha versus beta story, but where with the right GPs, you can do actually really well. So we're, I would say we've been more on the debt side than the equity side than we had historically, and we've been very selective about how we approach various sectors. Now, you, you, you threw in a, a sub-question there, which is what's the implication for the macro economy. Yeah. And I do think, you know, like we, we saw that with, you know, a lot of that talk what goes back to March, right? Where, you know, right in all of our, because I live in the Bay Area too, back door, you know, you had the Silicon Valley bank failure. And there was this whole recognition that a lot of the commercial real estate debt in the US that's held by banks is actually at the regional level. Um, I think that there is likely to be, you know, could have some credit effect if we saw major distress in the office space uh, on the banks, but it's likely to be contained given what the banking system's sort of uh, capital position is. It's not like the GFC. So, you know, there could be, you know, shocks, but it was amazing how quickly people shrugged off the failure of three, you know, reasonably sized banks, right? Um, so that gives us some you know, we're, I'm not saying sanguine, but, you know, we recognize the risk, but we're not sort of over-focusing on the downside from that sort of commercial real estate so on. I think it's much more about trying to be positioned to take advantage of the opportunities than it is about worrying about the sort of spillover to the macro, it's our view. Mm, that's encouraging. Um, 
So uh, in this, democ- or actually you call it retailization, I sometimes call it democratization of, of yeah, private yeah. equity and, and retail folks coming in. So you painted a picture, I mean, clearly larger asset class sizes usually is inversely correlated to re- returns, but you're saying that in private equity, you've got the you've got this um, oceanic uh, uh, food chain <laughs> effect. Um, but in venture, it seems to me, it's actually going to be pernicious because you're going to give a lot of money to the big funds. The sovereign wealth will write these massive checks to the brand name funds that will have to write big checks into companies at high valuations. I mean, that's what we saw in 2021, 22. But your, your exits there come from acquisitions, largely from public companies or IPO yourself. Um, yeah. And you're a little bit less sanguine on the equity markets, right? So you're not going to have that same cap uh, market cap power in the public markets. So it seems to me uh, you may be forecasting just a continued disaster for a little bit while longer in venture capital. You know, look, I, I am hesitant to talk about this in front of you, because <laughs> I think you have more perspective. On I always worry because I'm kind of somebody who works across the entire portfolio when I talk to uh, detailed experts. And I'm sure in the room there are people who know more about real estate than I do and more about, you know, corporate credit. But um, look, I do think that in venture, the combination of, you know, I, I think that it's going to take longer. This real retail effect, I had not thought of that. But I think that that is true there too. I, I agree with your implication that I think that, you know, we, you know, I think venture, in the end, venture is more of, of an alpha game than a beta game, in my view, um, yeah. in general. And, you know, being with the right sponsors and right, right firms that have the right access and can add the right value. So you can still make money. But I think as an asset class, yes, I do think that the forward looking returns of venture are going to be challenged for a while, partly for the, the implications that you've drawn out, um, but also just because, you know, like interest rates, uh, you know, costs, all of that mm-hmm. stuff has made it harder for venture to succeed than it was, you know, in 2015, you know, that's, so I think that that's, that's right. Right. Thank you very much. Great. But, you... but you've added, you've added some, um, this is one of the reasons I love talking to groups like you is because you've made me sort of think about even the implications of what I myself am saying, <laughs> which is really, no, it's really helpful. We'll That's have why to I grab a beer, talking. Rui. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Go down rabbit holes. Uh, Mr. Pani, you yeah, want I, to I, add something? I had a comment and a question. Um, I'll keep it short in the interest of time. So I, I agree, Rui. I think the, the depth of 60-40 was exaggerated, and I, I hope that we can increase duration and the tenure will hopefully trend towards upwards to four and a half at some point soon. Uh, my question though was on emerging markets. Uh, compared to our peers, we are overweight emerging markets. And if you can briefly touch on that, the valuation of emerging markets, both intermediate and long-term. Yeah, that's a great one. And, and um, you know, I think on the emerging market side, um, I, there's a, there, emerging markets are not monolithic, right? Like if you look, you know, some of the emerging markets last year, you know, again, you have a lot of options statistically, but some of the emerging markets last year were were the highest performing markets in the world, right? Um, so it's not a monolith. I think the our, our view on EM in general is that um, certain parts of the emerging markets are more attractive than others. I think China is mainly about risk tolerance. You know, they're, they're too, you know, they're clearly facing slowdowns, um, you know, the um, issues related to international sort of trade is going to be highly dependent on what happens in the U.S. election. 
And so there's just a lot of risk attached. And the question is not about what the returns are going to be, but, you know, valuations are pretty low. But the question is, do you have enough risk tolerance and or risk premium there on China? Whereas in India, I think it's a different story. Like India looks undervalued and is almost the inverse, right? They don't, they have the opposite demographics to China. They have, you know, the opposite debt position as China. And they are, you know, essentially uh, in place to sort of replace China if the, the sort of political economic uh, t uh, uh, headwinds that China faces uh, rebound to help India. So I think, you know, our view on, on emerging markets is, um, I'd say relatively neutral across the category, but it's really important to unpack the box and say, where do you want to be? You know, um, you know, I, I think India is probably our top pick right now amongst the emerging markets. We're more cautious on China and, you know, things like Latin America, I'd say we're, you know, sort of moderately cautious, more positive on Brazil, you know, but there, there's a lot of um, sort of political turmoil. You know, I, my, my wife is from Argentina. We spend a lot of time down there, and, you know, it's just amazing to see how much political and economic volatility they have, and yeah. that's happening throughout, you know, South America, so. Great, thank you. Great. Thank you. All right, I'm gonna to move to the lightning round of questions, uh, and a number of the questions that have prompted me to think through these. Um, you showed us the correlation between stock and bond returns, and when we compare private credit with public credit, I guess I assumed that they were well correlated, but is that in fact what you find? Uh, is public and private correlated, public and private returns well correlated or highly correlated? Or do we not have enough data? Yeah, so I think that if you look at the data, it'll show that they're less correlated than what they actually are. Um, and the reason is, is because, you know, there's stale pricing and so on. Um, I think what I would assume for public and private credit correlations is that they're positive that they're relatively high, but they're not one, right? Like they're not the same asset class. Different composition, um, different size companies, different sector composition. And so, you know, we generally assume, and I have to go look this up, but I think we generally assume if you were measuring on a mark-to-mark -mark basis, like if you could actually measure the entire private credit asset class on a real-time basis like you can with private credit, it's in between, you know, 0.5 and 0.6, which is high, but not one. Okay. Um, and then you did mention something, and you, you, there was an explanation, maybe I didn't follow it carefully. Um, you pointed out, due to the denominator effect, a lot of allocators have diminished or, or held constant their uh, allocation to private markets, and yet the amount of dry powder is ever-increasing. How do I correlate those two seemingly at-odds facts? Yeah, so, so what I said was that they have slowed down, right? Like, I mean, there's a large heterogeneity in, in <coughs> asset owners out there, right? But but many of them have slowed down the level of commitments, not to zero, but have slowed down, okay? In an environment where they were increasing their overall allocations. So it is true that aggregate dry powder has traced up and continues to trace up, right? But the point that I made was that as fundraising cycles have slowed down, some allocators have slowed down, um, the amount of dry powder, which in absolute terms has continued to increase as a percent of the installed base, right? Like if you think about all of the market as one portfolio, the percentage of dry powder re related to the actual assets held has actually gone down. So 
you know, you have to normalize to the amount of private equity out there when you think about dry powder. You can't just say in aggregate terms. And so that's actually slowed down, which is consistent with not necessarily people stopping, but people slowing down uh, their rate of commitments. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I guess the, my last question actually kind of more points to a question that uh, Mr. Polanyi raised. It seems like uh, you're advocating a, a greater tilt towards a uh, greater allocation towards credit at this stage of the uh, business cycle. And I know that's a view echoed by Howard Marks and others that uh, Mr. Polanyi follows. So I'm curious if our next uh, suggested asset allocation is going to tilt towards more credit than we've seen in recent past. But that's the decision. You know is that a question for me or for I think that's more of a question yeah, for you, Mr. Paul. I think it's a question for you, probably. Okay. Because I, I, it, I was depends where you're it depends where you're coming from. I mean, it, yeah, so it's yeah, very interesting. say that decision is made by the board? Of course. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll look forward to your presentations in future on that. Uh, any other questions from trustees? Any questions from the public? Anybody online? Well, thank you very much. Very, very interesting. A lot of data to absorb, and I look forward to getting the full uh, presentation deck so we can see the missing slides. Thank you so much. Okay, well, thank, thank you. I, just on behalf of all of us, Morgan Stan, myself, David, I mean, it is a real pleasure and honor. I'm very flattered to be able to present to you. I hope it was somewhat helpful, and uh, I look forward to talking to all of you one-on-one -on -one or, or together in the future. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Okay, I believe we are, have completed the agenda through fully through agenda item six. We are on to um, seven uh, committee reports, 7.1 investment committee. And um, uh, yeah, um, Chair Chandra? Sure, uh, I, I was not present for the December 23 board meeting um, and hopefully one of my uh, co-committee members were able to provide some form of update because I don't fully remember the December <laughs> board meeting, uh, sorry, uh, investment committee meeting. But our next meeting's in February, and uh, we'll have a, a report out after that. Great. Yeah, we, we did a review of uh, private markets and uh, That's and right. also an update from Paris on uh, risk yeah. uh, issues. And, and the transactions cost analysis. Yeah. Okay. And Rui gave us a very nice overview of the macro markets today, so I think we're mm -hmm. in good shape. Okay. Uh, the audit committee. Do we need to take a time to make it? Oh, sure. Do we, do we need to vote on that? No, they just get filed. Receive and file. Um, 7.2 audit committee. Uh, last meeting was way back in October, so is I assume there's nothing new to report, unless I'm mistaken? No, yes. Okay, very good. Uh, governance committee last meeting was back in November so I'm assuming again that there's nothing new to report no and our next meeting mr. chair is a, again a joint governance committee meeting mm -hmm. with uh, police and fire okay and That's just next Monday so just next Monday and Dewey and uh, under governance is where we are reviewing the progress towards the adaption of uh, ORS policies and mm -hmm. and uh, Correct. its correlation with city policies uh, do, do we have any update from council on the progress of that? Yes, we will be able to present at the Joint Governance Committee our full review of all city policies. Full review, so this is going to be a, com a complete, okay. Um, great, well, we'll certainly look forward to, to seeing that, okay. Uh, Disability Committee. 
Uh, obviously, we just voted on a disability recommendation. Um, is there a any further? You'll be seeing on your February meeting, mm -hmm. uh, unconsent, uh, two approvals for a disability, and uh, so that'll be coming there. And then um, we have item C is the important item for today's discussion because mm -hmm. there we've we've gone through with the help of um, uh, staff and attorneys. Uh, we have approved a, uh, a rules for our procedures and uh, the whole process of uh, how. So it's basically giving us some some actual guidelines of how to proceed and guidelines for people who are applying for uh, disability retirement. And we felt very good about what was uh, presented in the draft and are recommending that for uh, uh, consideration and hopefully board approval. Okay, and is this a case where there, there were no uh, procedures prior to this? This is something new or just a modification? This is something new for us. Okay. Uh, police and fire had procedures and policies and whatnot. But this is something that we had asked, uh, the committee members had asked the staff and the attorneys to prepare for us to look at. They've done that. Uh, Maytech put it all together towards the end. And um, I, I, it's, it looks good to us. We also are, are going in August to uh, have on our agenda to see how it's actually working uh, for the staff and for the uh, retirees who are applying. So if I, if I may, just for the record, mm -hmm. um, as a part of our governance improvement project, we sought to memorialize our disability retirement application process and procedures in writing, both for the board, the committees, as well as the um, members and future generations. There are a few features of the, the policy that are new features that are not necessarily what we've been doing in the past. So I did want to highlight that for the okay. committee. Um, one of them is uh, what to do when a member who filed a disability retirement application becomes non-responsive. The committee has decided to uh, institute the following process, which is to require that ORS contact the member at least twice per communication method provided on their application and within 90 days. And within that period, they would continue to move forward with the application rather than stall and let it become stale over time. So it would move forward with the various process of going to the IME, then going to the disability committee, as well as the um, full board. And the member at any juncture of that process may appear and uh, have, their, have their case heard. Um, it, another key element is that we will be providing a copy of these uh, procedures to the member at each of the junctures. So for example, when we they first file it, they get 20 days after, or 20 or 30 days after, they would get a copy of the, the rules. And then when we schedule them from the IME, we again provide them a copy of the rules. When they go to the disability committee, when we set, set uh, that, that, um, that matter, they will again get a copy of the rules, and again, when it comes before the board. So we, we thought that that would be a, a prudent way to go forward so that the members are fully informed. Um, two other things that uh, the policy provides is that it gives a, a checklist cover sheets of the elements that must be met, and uh, the, the staff and the committee's assessment of whether or not those, those elements are met to help focus the committee and board's consideration of those ap applications and those elements. And lastly, it provides the committee the sole judgment to make exception to the rules for good cause. And it's good cause is defined within the policy. Okay, great. Uh, so are there any questions from trustees on the new proposed policy or the memorialization of what was existing policy? 
Okay, would anyone like to formulate a, a motion to accept this policy? So I'll accept a motion, Mr. Chair. All right, so that's and, it. And I'll second it. Very good, that's a motion from Trustee Linder, a second from uh, Trustee Chandra. Any discussion on the motion? Any public comment? <coughs> Hearing none, we will vote. Vice Chair Jennings? Aye. Uh, Trustee Abbott? Aye. Trustee Avasti? Aye. Trustee Chandra? Aye. Trustee Faulkner? Aye. Trustee Linder? Aye. And I vote aye as well, so the policy is adopted. So just for the clarity of Thank record you. and for the members as well, the, the policy now that it's been adopted, by, the procedures uh, have now been adopted by the board, they will be effective as of today. Uh, yes, I assume that was the intent. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Um, item 7-5. Oh, we, we we're gonna receive and file the minutes, of course. Um, uh, Joint Personnel Committee, uh, were you at the last meeting? I, I was not, and I, we should note, uh, there was a December meeting, and I noticed that there's only minutes present for the November meeting to receive and file. I don't know if there should be December huh. minute uh, meetings as well. December is going to be presented at the JPC for approval of the JPC first before it shows ah. up on ours. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, right. correct. Okay, so the we, other thing, Mr. Chair, that the uh, December meeting will have is the representative from Alliance will be present to discuss uh, how we want to proceed with uh, getting information together about what we want in our next CEO. Mm -hmm. and, and just for the benefit of the full board, it was at the, at the December meeting that we chose a outside uh, recruitment firm, and that is Alliance that you just mentioned. Um, and so they were, it was competitive, I believe there were three bids, it was a competitive bid. Correct. And we selected Alliance to manage the recruitment process for our CEO. Um, That's correct. That did happen at that meeting. Okay, so we'll get And you can see in the attachments to the agenda um, the RFPs that we did receive, and I think you'll see why we uh, went with Alliance. Yes. Um, any comments or questions on the JPC committee report? Okay, so hearing none, we will receive and file the minutes, which were the November minutes, apparently. And that brings us to education and training. I think we can all see that is the Cortex report. We have the Calipers General Assembly coming up in Rancho Mirage. And um, also the uh, advanced principles for at the UCLA. Are there any questions about the education and training? Any proposed agenda items? Hearing none, at 11.06, we are in adjournment. Thank you. Yeah, I couldn't, I can't make Thank you.